Imagine a world where you knew that you mattered and you belonged. The people cared about you because we were so darn good at listening to one another, no matter how different we are. That is what Sidewalk Talk is doing by putting listeners on sidewalks all over the world so that we can practice the art of connecting. Join me, founder and director Tracy Rubel, as I interview experts on the fine art of human connection and interview some of our volunteers who've been listening on the sidewalk and even some of the folks that we've listened to. And if you want to volunteer, consider joining us at sidewalk-talk.org. Do you know how excited I am to bring you this dialogue right now? Parker Palmer, to me, has been a poet to my own heart. And when I got to talk with him off air, I learned some fun things about him that we have in common. We're both first-generation college grads in our family, and we're both stinkers. We really are stinkers together. But he's this beautiful soul that tells it like it is. He's got a PhD in sociology from the University of California, Berkeley. He has honorary doctorates and achievement awards. He has renowned books, nine that have been published and reached millions of people worldwide. Some of my favorites are The Courage to Teach, A Hidden Wholeness, my favorite favorite, Let Your Life Speak, Healing the Heart of Democracy. I, you already know who he is, but I just can't wait to bring you this conversation because it's going to go in directions that even surprised me. And my favorite part was that he told me that I was crazy. And all I can say to you, Parker, if you listen to this, is that I felt like I was at home talking with you. I felt at home. Parker Palmer. So Parker Palmer, I'm really grateful to have you here and to be in dialogue with you because I came to your work after starting listening on the sidewalk. And what happened was I felt kinship with you. And so my heart feels really touched just to get to be in dialogue around our passion for human connection encounters. So I just, I wanted to first say, where are you now? Because you're, you're kind of in a retired place. And I'm curious if you're, focus on these kinds of encounters has changed over time, or if you're as passionate about it as ever. Uh, as passionate about what? I'm sorry. I'm just... As passionate about connection encounters as ever. Oh, yes. Well, first of all, uh, let me thank you, Tracy, for having me on. I'm, I'm, I'm very impressed with Sidewalk Talk, and I'm glad to have a, an opportunity to talk with you and with what I understand to be 7,000 sidewalk listeners uh, out there who are connected with your, with your project. So I, I'm soon to turn 81, but my, I guess I have no retirement skills <laughs> because I've been, I've been unable to do it. Um, I continue to be very actively involved and indeed created a new project called The, the Growing Edge, which is all about um, Connecting, well, it's about hope, hard times, and the human possibility, mm -hmm. to, uh, to use the name of one of the public events that uh, my colleague and I put on. Is this with Carrie Newcomer? 
Gary Newcomer. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Um, wonderful, wonderful person whose work everyone should know. A great listener uh, as, as well. So I do that, and um, I do an, a, an assortment of other things. I continue to write. As you know, I published a new book last year, my 10th. Mm -hmm. It's all about uh, getting old, uh, really <laughs> because I don't know anything about that, but it's just about getting old, on the brink of everything, grace, gravity, and getting old. And then an assortment of other stuff, uh, such as the fact that three weeks ago, I was in a public dialogue up in Minneapolis uh, in front of 1,200 people with a remarkable a black female activist who heads up the north side zone project, uh, which is working with a community that historically has been redlined and blockbusted out of existence. And she's bringing it back to life by working with families. And we had an incredible dialogue about race, um, unscripted, in which we really, I think, heard each other into speech which is one of the definitions I have for listening at its, at its best, hearing the other person into speech. So that's a little bit about me. I, yes, indeed, connection remains very important to me. I also have a Facebook author page that has about 90,000 people following it right now, where I post pretty regularly poetry and brief essays and questions and comments that, um, that I want to invite people to engage with, and a lot of them do. So, so yes, I I still value connection, and I can't imagine um, can't imagine retreating from that. Well, do you want to know why I asked that? Sure. Because your autoresponder maybe isn't telling the truth, then Parker. I have this uh, auto reply on my email that basically says, thanks, but no thanks. Yeah. Please, please go away. And the, reason, the reason for that is that I continue to get inundated with requests to do things I've done in the past. Yeah. Travel, give talks, write a forward for a book, write an endorsement for a book, lead a workshop, you know, hit the road. And, um, in, at age 80, one thing I know for sure is that I need to be very selective mm -hmm. about my time and energy, and also about what it is that I give myself to, and I have mm -hmm. to I have to maintain uh, enough time to give myself to things that I want to give myself to, rather than uh, the stuff that people want me to do based on my 50 years of, of independent work. So. It saves me a lot of time to just say, okay, my auto reply answered that one. But what's the next one? And does it look like a live possibility? <laughs> well, I have a lot to learn from you there. I too have an auto responder with a very similar intention because I tend to be a people pleaser that says yes to too many things and then I get worn out. So I, I but it, it goes without saying, it means a lot that you would make some time for us here. So I appreciate it. Delighted. Um, can we geek out? Because you and I both really have a shared sort of conviction around connection. And I, I want to get your live dialogue thinking, why, are, why do we suck at connection? I mean, we're people with hearts and 
you know, virtue and care, and yet it seems to be getting harder. Yeah. Um, you know, I think, uh, I mean, a lot, this would be an answer that a lot of people would give, and I'm sure it's one that you think about, Tracy, is that <clears throat> we have this tribal thing, however you want to define tribal, of um, being at least a little and maybe a lot afraid of, quote, the other um, people who aren't in our tribe, the people who look different from us, the, the people who speak a different language, the people who have a different belief system than, than we do. I, it, it's a, for me, it's a crippling part of the human legacy because most of my learning in, in life has come from people who aren't like me. Um, and in fact, one of my definitions of, of hell is ending up with a whole lot of white folk who grew up in suburbs uh, and are continuing to live in a gated community. I just, I can't imagine it. Um, to me, the good life is a life in which I'm being stretched by diverse experiences, uh, diverse points of view, uh, diverse uh, lenses on the world and ways of interpreting things, and sort of diverse fundamental assumptions about what's happening um, in, in, in our world um, as it now stands. I, the example that comes quickly to mind is around the time of the 2016 election, I was teaching a graduate course and took the occasion on the day after the election um, to open a discussion about student responses to the election. And the, the, obviously the election of our 45th president who basically ran on an anti-immigrant, um, uh, I would say on, on a white nationalist uh, and fundamentally racist uh, platform. Um, and the white students in the class immediately spoke up and said, we are absolutely shocked at the fact that Americans would elect this man president of the United States. Then a black student spoke for all of the other black students in the class and said, well, we're not shocked at all because we've known this for generations in a country that is based on white racism, white nationalism, white supremacy. This is no news to us at all. And what shocks us is that folks like those who just spoke are shocked. Um, and I, for me, that's an example of why it's very, very to to, to take this impulse to be connected, which we have right alongside an impulse to hunker down and hang out with our own trust. <laughs> we must take this impulse to be connected and use it to connect across those lines because that's where the learning is, that's where the juice is. Yeah. Do you think it's getting harder to do that though? Well, so yeah. we're post-2016, do you think it's changed? In, the, in this country, especially when you have someone running cover for 
white nationalism, white racism, white supremacy. Um, and in case there's anybody out there who thinks I'm exaggerating, um, our, our 45th president has as one of his top advisors in daily conversation with him, a man named Stephen Miller, who is a, is a convicted, I'm going to put quotes around that word, a convicted white nationalist and white supremacist, convicted not by my words, but by his own words, mm -hmm. by what he writes and says and who he writes and says it to. Um, it, it's intolerable to a lot of us that this man remains at the president's side and with the president's ear. But yes, it's getting harder because it's becoming, uh, it being white racism and white nationalism, it's becoming legitimated. And there are a lot of us in this country, in the US, involved in a variety of movements to bring that to an end, to stop legitimating it. We're, we're mm -hmm. always going to have a problem in this country because. We, you know, it's not enough to talk about institutionalized racism in our political system and in our economy. What we have to realize is that that institutionalization began with the founders. Mm -hmm. And the economic foundations, even before the founders of a country, the United States of America, that was built on the backs of the labor of human beings. And yeah. that's that's a, that's part of our DNA. It's going to be very hard to do the gene splicing necessary um, to overcome that. And I suspect, in one form or another, it will always be with us. But it can be mitigated. We have mm -hmm. seen it happen in the past, and it can happen again. Yeah. So. I, it's it's funny that we're having this conversation on a day where I also got to be in dialogue with Howard C. Stevenson. He's at University of Pennsylvania and he teaches racial literacy and he's also a, a black psychotherapist. And so we were in dialogue around some of these things earlier in the day. And he also, like you, stressed getting into connection and getting into dialogue, but he, he also talked about how we have to listen, much like you, to our own stories. And so how, how do you indict yourself? I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. I'll put my, I'll include myself and in how I indict myself and how I participate in unconsciously in perhaps some of these dehumanizing tribal forces that might have people of color or people of other identities not feel like they could enter into dialogue with me. How do you work with that in yourself? Right. And it's a, it's a very important question and, and one I'm glad to respond to. I've been reading um, the work of a young black historian named Ibram, I-B-R-A-M, oh. and, mm -hmm. and uh, you may know of his work. Yes. And I think he's, you know, he's trying to reboot the conversation around race in the United States. And he has, I think, some very important things to say. A lot that I won't I won't try to rehearse here today. But one thing he says is that that, I, that will take me to a direct response to your question um, is that <clears throat> the, the the category non-racist is an empty category. There's nobody who lives there of, of any race. That's right. Or, or 
He says there are only two kinds of people. There are racists and anti-racists. And an anti-racist is characterized by um, not just one, but an ongoing string of decisions to witness against, uh, to live in opposition to, to protest racist policies, practices, and attitudes. And the good news in what he says is that these these are not fixed categories. You know, you you can be a racist one moment and an anti-racist the next moment. It all depends on level of consciousness and the kinds of experiences you seek out and the kinds of courage you're willing to summon to protest, to witness against, to live in opposition to various forms of racism. Kendi, K-E-N-D-I, for those who Google his name, um, also says, for white people, the process begins, or for anybody really, I think you would say, the process begins with confession. So when I was in this interracial dialogue a few weeks ago in front of 1,200 people, I said, here's my confession, and I'll give you the short form of it. First of all, I acknowledge that I am um, bathed in white privilege 24-7 and have been for my entire life and will be for the rest of my life. And I said, I've talked to white people about this who will say, well, wait a minute. Um, I'm white. I have a, a cousin who's white, and my cousin didn't the house that he wanted or he didn't get the job that he wanted. What's this white privilege all about? And, I, and I, I say, well, I'm sorry that your cousin didn't get the house or the job, but I can almost guarantee you this, 99.9% certain, it wasn't because of his skin color okay. that he the house or the job. There was some other variable at work, some other factor at work. May or may not have been his fault. I'm not, I have no idea. But the odds are overwhelming that it wasn't because of his skin color. While we know that lots of jobs are not given and lots of houses aren't sold to people of color. And so then they'll say, well, wait a minute, I was, I was just born white. I, how, can, how can I be guilty for being born white? I said, you're not guilty. I would say that you're not guilty for being born white. That's a silly notion. But, but what you're guilty for is if you don't acknowledge the, the reality of white privilege, that's, that's, a, that's a living unconsciously. Mm -hmm. And if you don't try to use your white privilege um, to, to amp up your courage and say things to other white people, they aren't accustomed to hearing and they don't enjoy hearing. Mm -hmm. we, we have to have not only, and I think this is a very important principle, we, not, we have to have not only conversation, and which includes listening and speaking, across racial lines or other lines of divide, we need to have conversations within our own tribe. Mm -hmm. Because there are things that white people can say to other white people that people of color can't say, and, and frankly, many of them are tired of saying. Mm -hmm. And 
black activists have said the same thing to me. There, there are things that I can say uh, to people of color that, um, that I would not say to white people and that you can't say to us. So, it, you know, I, I think this need for conversation dialogue is, is cross-cutting and it, it, it has to be rooted in an, in an awareness of our own limitations, whether we're white or uh, of color, whether we're male or female, it all comes with perspective, with particularity, and therefore with limits as well as potentials on, on what we can see and what we're able to understand deeply and who it is that we can effectively be, be talking to. Well said. And what I love about Ibrahim Kendi's work is the way that he brings up this dialogue of anti-racist or racist is he takes it out of the realm of a personal attribute and instead makes it a momentary behavioral blind spot or, or intention. Yep. And that seems to liberate this I'm a bad person anxiety that has us all feeling sort of, I would say, there, there is a kind of righteous identity politics, which to me is not anti-racist work. Right. That's completely different. And I think he's trying to get us out of that. He said, look, stop with that already. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I totally agree. I think that's a very good tagline for his work. I, you know, I like to say there is such a thing as righteous speech and it, and it can be helpful, also called prophetic speech. And there's a long history of it. But there's another thing called self-righteous speech. And that really shuts down conversation rather than opening it up. And I want to say one more thing quickly. Yeah. My profession, because it goes deeper than white privilege. Um, I also said in front of this audience of 1,200 mostly white people, I also said, I think it's a cop-out when white people limit white supremacy to folks who wear hoods and burn crosses. Mm -hmm. The Ku Klux Klan did, has done in the, in the South. I said, I think that the, the forms that white supremacy takes are much more subtle and nuanced and diverse than that. And I want to acknowledge a form of white supremacy that I have had inside of me for many years that I've slowly over the years, I mean, I started my career after grad school as a community organizer working on racial justice. Um, so I started learning in my late 20s what this was all about. The, the form that I've slowly had to come to terms with over the years is, is, is one in which I, have, I hold an unconscious assumption that the white way is the normative way or the normal way, which is a ludicrously arrogant assumption when you consider what a minority of white people are on this planet. But I harbored that assumption. And while I never, I didn't hate anybody because they had a different way, racially, religiously, ethnically, in terms of national origin, I, I, I regarded their ways as odd, as, as exotic, sometimes as a little off-putting, even scary. And 
wonder, and this is all unconscious stuff, because once you raise it to consciousness, you realize how incredibly stupid it is. Wondered why they couldn't do it the normal way, right? Mm -hmm. uh, the normative way, which was the white way. And so part of my work has been inwardly to overcome my own version of white supremacy, not just to handle more consciously and responsibly my white privilege. And I find that, you know, an even more challenging kind of work. White, white privilege is pretty obvious. All you have to do is to ask yourself, take any five things that our current president has done, um, ask how many of those President Obama could have gotten away with without being removed from office right. or utterly destroying his political career? And the, the answer is zero. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's, that's all because of, of, of color. So, but white supremacy is, um, lives in us, in us white people, at a, a deeper, harder to reach level. Mm -hmm. um, and it, it, you know, it, it, it really is in certain ways a psychotherapeutic issue that we need help with. But I'm not saying that we need to go to a professional. I'm saying this is a conversation we can have among ourselves. And as we have the conversation and make our own confessions and get listened to, mm -hmm. um, we can we can then start to change and and invite other people to change as well. I really value how you're for all of us highlighting what white supremacy is beyond the Ku Klux Klan, that it is a dehumanizing of anything other than white or a second classing of anything other than white. And it's not evidence that white people are bad people. It means that we're unconscious people and we have been indoctrinated into this thing, that it is our responsibility, you know, per Dr. Kendi's work to wake up to that. I, I, that's a gr another great way to put it, Tracy. I'm just reflecting you in my shorthand. That's all I'm doing. It's <laughs> well, a, a great, at age 80 or 81, close to 81, I have a tendency to ramble on, but that's a great nutshell description of, of, what, I, of what I meant to say. And I do think that conversation is the, is the way forward on that and the kinds of conversations that I've tried to encourage in our work my work, our work, the Center for Courage and Renewal's work is is the kind of conversation where people can listen at a level of depth where um, they suddenly find themselves saying, whoa, I, I, this other person is talking about themselves, but I just learned something about myself. Mm -hmm. um, and that those are precious, precious conversations. Yeah. Well, there's the way in which you can never quite get this right because the end you know one thing i have learned from being a psychotherapist is how long it takes i mean i don't know that we're ever fully conscious right and maybe that's a, a just a fine thing because you know the unconscious is vast and rich and it takes a long time to move around in there and i think that we make we're just destined to make a lot of mistakes no how many how, how earnest we are in our effort to be anti-racist. Yeah, yeah. I think, I think there's no question about that. And I think part of living a 
good human life is self-forgiveness mm-hmm. as well as forgiveness of others. The, 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 the litmus test is really simple. Are you still on the journey? Mm-hmm. Are you still reaching? Are you still trying? You know, as you may know from my writing, I've, I've made in my 80 years three deep dives into clinical depression. Mm-hmm. And as part of my recovery from that or my emergence from that, I've done a lot of uh, therapy, especially Jungian therapy. Hmm. And I'm pretty convinced. So are you into James Hillman? You probably are. I, yes, yes, <laughs> very much so. There's some great writers in that, in that uh, wheelhouse. But I'm, I'm convinced, to go back to an earlier remark you made about the slow emergence of consciousness or awareness and, and how we have to be you know, gentle with ourselves about that. I'm just convinced that if we were ever to let it all out of the unconscious box, we'd die. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be pretty pretty messy, that's for sure. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, if it all came out at once, you know, I think we'd die. It's like, you know, it's like radiation. It'd just kill you. And and, um, I, I, I... I want to be conscious, but I also want to stay alive so I can do decent work <laughs> that might serve somebody. Yeah, yeah. So you don't want the unconscious to kill you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, I guess I love that we're both a little bit crass. I, it's kind of fun. It's a part, it's a part of you that I didn't know. Um, it's birds of, birds of a feather, Parker. Um, <laughs> I think so. I think we're both crazy. <laughs> and you know what? I love that you just called me crazy. Oh my God, that's like the high point of my life. <laughs> Jesus, that's awesome. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yes, I know that we're nearing the end of time. I could just go on with you forever and ever. Um, I, I do want to just get into one connection piece though. And I think that there is, I don't want to get all um, slapstick and, and lovey-dovey here, and, and I, it's, this isn't the oneness unity thing, and it kind of is in another way, which is there is this power dynamic or this craving for being important as a self that seems to have us get into, it, it sort of exacerbates these tribal mindsets, that it seems like these connection encounters begin to resolve, right? Because in these deeper connection encounters, we recognize potentially, I hope, I, I don't want to say too much because I want you to teach me, I don't want that, that there is, that we are much more powerful in our connection and belongingness to one another than in dehumanizing or winning or out-competing or outperforming one another. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. One of the great myths of American culture is that the way to better ideas or better work or a more perfect union is competition. And I absolutely do not believe that. I believe it's collaboration. I believe that all of us together are always smarter than any one of us alone and always more powerful and, and always more effective. And I, and I agree with you completely, Tracy, that the there, there's this, people have this, this need to, to feel their own power, to feel their own voice and agency, as, as I like to say. You know, I'm especially aware of this among the 
older people I know, people older than I, who who no longer are active in work or no longer have a network of meaningful relationships that they had for many years, because many of their friends, maybe their partners have died and their families are scattered. The job is gone. But um, we, we miscalculate how, how we come into power in exactly the way you just expressed. We don't come, power is not something that we hold as individuals. Power is something that we generate collectively as all of the great social movements have proven. If you look at the role of great social movements, liberation movements around the globe, here's a simple observation, but I think profoundly true. Every one of these movements, the women's movement, the movements for liberation in Eastern Europe, in South Africa, in Latin America, the, the Black liberation movement here in, this, in the United States, every one of these was fomented and generated by people who had had every form of power stripped from them. They had no armies, they had no money, they had no access to institutional centers of power. All they had was the power of the human heart and the power of community. And the human heart cries out for equality and for justice. And in the power of community, the, the, the power of the individual heart gets amplified and it, 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 it gains trajectory and, and it gains force and effectiveness. Um, and that's half the story of history. It's just not a story that we're taught in our, in our history courses. Mm -hmm. So absolutely so. And, and the great, you know, I'll just say this too. I think this is something that's, um, that you've understood for a very long time. But human beings bear a lot of wounds. Mm -hmm. we're, we're driven by our wounds. And I think one of the greatest wounds that we find around the earth is people who feel unseen, unheard, and unappreciated. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a very uh, painful life to live. You know, here I am. Nobody yeah. sees me, nobody hears me, nobody appreciates what I do. And there are millions and millions and millions of people who show up every day in all kinds of settings, who have that, who bear that wound. And your work with Sidewalk Talk, the work of all the good folks who have joined you, is, is really addressing that, that wound because you're listening to people. You're inviting their stories. And in, in doing that, you are helping them take a small step toward empowerment to say nothing of enriching your own lives mm -hmm. and crafting for you the connections that also give give you power. Mm -hmm. So I think this is this is you know we're weaving a fabric here um, uh, around what may seem like many topics, but it's it's really one topic, and and it is the topic of what it means to be a human being with voice and agency. And, and one who finds ways to extend those gifts or those encouragements to other people. Mm -hmm.
Well, this is a, a great segue to our close, but I wanted to say to you that your legacy lives on in our work because your words have given us sustenance. Sometimes it's hard when you get big because you're, you get all the operation stuff. And so I just want to say that to you for you to know that, you know, even when you're out hiking in the woods, you can go, okay, but there's a group of sidewalk talk listeners out listening in the world somewhere and they're being inspired by something I've said. So I just want to make sure you give that to you, that you know Thank that. You. Thank you. Yeah. So we have a tradition for how we close. I'm going to get out of the way here and, and let you speak directly to all these beautiful souls around the world who sit on sidewalks and listen and privilege the voice of the unseen and unheard with either a wish or a piece of wisdom before we sign off together. Well, what a lovely opportunity. So I'll say to the good people who work with you, uh, if you could see me now, you would see that I am making a deep bow to each and every one of you and to the work you do in, out in the public life, listening to folks who very rarely, if ever, get listened to. Um, I'm sure there are moments when people look at you and say, that's weird, and he or she is weird. Um, but people, you know, one of the ways our culture clamps down on us, our cultures all around the globe clamp down on us, is they, they define creative actions as weird and discourage people from taking them because creativity upsets the apple cart and cultures are all about controlling uh, the movement of the apple cart and keeping it upright the way the folks, the powers and principalities want it to be. So, so if you occasionally get that, that weird vibe, um, take it as confirmation that you are engaged in social change through the simple act of listening, inviting stories, hearing people into speech at deeper and deeper levels, allowing them, creating the conditions for them to have a deepening conversation with themselves. And I can guarantee from my own experience, and I imagine you know this as well as I do, that a deepening conversation with yourself can create personal transformation and can end up being profoundly rewarding and affirming of, of who you are and how you are in the world. So you're giving a great gift, a deep bow to all of you with gratitude for you helping to make this world a better place. You just breathed life right into my heart. I know that's for sure. Parker, thank you so much for this dialogue and this time. And anytime you need anything, I'm here. Thank you so much, Tracy. It's been a joy being with you. Power to you. All right, be well. Thank you for being here and listening to this episode of the Sidewalk Talk podcast. If you like what you heard, 
Tell your friends, tell your family, like and comment on the podcast publisher that you're listening from and subscribe. This will help us get the word out about changing our culture to one of connection.